Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Produced at the studios of 3CR on Wurundjeri country in Melbourne and broadcast to stolen lands right across this continent via the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Nahern. Sometimes we need to stop and listen. Sometimes we need people to help us imagine a different world. On today's show, we take time to listen to three writers and activists who help us see our world differently and help us imagine other possible futures. Hannah Donnelly is a Wiradjuri woman from New South Wales. She's the creator of the Sovereign Tracks music blog, celebrating Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander music and culture. Hannah is also the co-editor of Sovereign Apocalypse, and her writing experiments with speculative fiction and future imaginings of Indigenous responses to climate change. So I'm just going to read a story today. Um, It's called At the End of Their World, Keep Cups. I'm going to die of thirst, she said to herself. She jumped across slippery granite to make her way upstream, dislodging dead cycads curled over and brown. She lost her balance and the old billy can fell in stagnant water. It sunk into the mud. Bitch of a creek, she thought. She was carrying her sacred keep cup full of water, but it wasn't enough to make a cup of tea. She shrugged and turned back up the sidetrack. The oracle called her over. She was resting under a piece of rusty corrugated iron suspended between branches of a cypress pine and a thick iron bark tree. Kid, you've got to take this geocode prophecy into town. I can't trust no one else. She'd never, never thought about crossing the border before. Can I have a prediction, though? Where's the water? Billy can rusted through. Had a hole in it, she lied. The oracle poked around inside her watermelon-coloured keep cup, hanging on stringy bark twisted around her neck. She pulled out a chunk of crystal quartz and looked at it for a few seconds. Finally, she said, You are not the one. Nobody is ever the one. Well, go on then. The oracle handed her a small parcel. You want to get this to Mr. Yu before sundown. Mr. Yu was set up under a tarp, fashioned over the skeleton of a car. An elaborate trail of siphon hoses tangled over empty buckets to collect forecast rain. She walked up to Mr. Uncle and nodded. Lent over where a window used to be. He sprawled over warm phone seats, watching the only road to Big Town. You're going to cross over, he said. She wondered if it was possible that the spirits had already told him. You're going to cross over, he repeated, and you'll get checked at the border. But there'll be someone waiting for you there, don't worry, it's done. She thanked him and walked away. Waiting at the depot, she started reading signs. 
Warning, prescribed area. No liquor, no pornography, no eco-faith objects. She pressed nervously against the keep cup hidden in her bag. An old lady sitting on a bench lit up a smoke and offered her one. So, you crossing over? How did you know? They sent me. Dangling the smoke out the corner of her mouth, the old lady pulled out a fox, uh, faux possum cloak and handed it to her. You'll have to dance for the official welcome to country, but after that, the speeches will finish and my daughter will show you the way in. Big town was flat, cracked earth as far as the eye could see. The old lady's daughter had told her to stick to the footpath and someone would find her. She stopped in front of a water station for a drink and saw a young fellow wave. He whispered, not here, keep moving. They emerged at the front of a vacant shopping bay. These are the only screens without security, he said. She handed him the parcel. He pulled off the plastic cover behind a screen and connected the oracle's memory. There, now you can read. He walked away and she turned to ask him how she could get back home and then saw an error message. The data started flicking across the screen. It said, inside keep cups, it was written. Low flowering G-bung marked the beginning of the track. She was much older by the time she returned to the creek. The oracle was long gone. She slowly started digging with her hands under the ironbark tree. She found the watermelon keep cup buried in a plastic bag. She ripped it open and raised the cup to look inside. Hannah Donnelly, recorded there in January 2018, performing at the National Gallery of Victoria as part of the event Climate Justice, a First Nations Guide to Resisting the Anthropocene. And thank you to the Koori Heritage Trust for supplying the audio. Claire G. Coleman is a Noongar woman from the south coast of Western Australia. She writes fiction, essays and poetry. Here she is reading as part of the Decolonising Climate Action panel discussion at Black Dot Gallery in Melbourne in April 2017. I had a recurring dream, more a nightmare. It haunted my rest. I watched helpless as the world descended into sickness, dying not with a whimper but with a bang. The air burning, the cities baking empty, the streets deserted and the asphalt half melted. Human voices sobbing and screaming, driven mad for lack of food and water, shelter and comfort. The seas poisoned and bereft of life, the lands growing dry and barren, slipping back to before the Carboniferous, to pre-Permian, to before the Dreaming. All the edifices of this so-called civilization will stand like silent gravestones, not enough life left in the world to tear it all down. Night after night, day upon day, the same nightmare, until I realised my horror would not let me sleep. It had not let me dream.
Uh, this one's called Licorice Green. Um, it's a colour, obviously. My favourite colour. A green so dark it's almost black sucks me in. Black is the colour of mystery, of anarchy, the colour of rebellion. Standing alone if you need to stand alone. Stand alone if there's no one else to stand with, but still standing. Black is the colour of darkness and of death. The skin of my ancestors. Interest in the world, word for evil is dark, and the word for the colour of my father's skin is dark. We looked after this home, this land, while the white powers destroyed theirs. Why were white men so scared of my father's father's mother? My father's father. Darkness is under the trees in the deep forest. Darkness is deep underground. Once your eyes adjust, the sky at night is never dark. Especially in the city, but even in the middle of nowhere, we have the moon and stars. Why do we so fear the dark? Why do you so fear the dark? The, the darkness holds you to anger. Why do you so fear the dark that you'll burn irreplaceable resources to cast it out? It's getting hotter. The soil built from sand and life is dying. The trash is piling up. The only thing our economy creates is pollution. That's what the economy is for. It turns resources into pollution. We're fighting a war against the planet and we are winning. If we fight the planet, we can only fight ourselves. If we fight ourselves, we can only lose. Tell me honestly, is there hope in any colour other than green? The darkness under trees, the darkness within the forest, the darkness inside of life is licorice green. This one sounds like it's going to be cute. <laughs> this is a poem about bees. It's hard to write poetry about bees. I cannot convey the beauty of their music, their family life with hundreds of sisters, their work ethic and their dancing. I cannot write poetry about bees. Bees are beyond words. Bees are beyond me. They're bigger than I am. A bee can kiss a multitude of flowers and without the bee their blooms are worthless. Bees have language, but they only seem to need it to tell each other where the flowers are. You, can't, you can say no evil in bee. They store food for their future, for their children's future, in golden wax seal cells, the sweetest food in nature. And that is what they need flowers for. Flowers live for the bee, and bees live for flowers. We fear their, fear their sting. We fear them because they can sting, when they can only sting by killing themselves. And like us, they can do no harm for fun. Today I have eaten well, of honey stolen from the bee, and apples, tomatoes, walnuts, pecans, and who knows what, all from flowers kissed by a bee. And without a bee, I would have had flour and potatoes. If I could talk bee, if they would condescend to talk to me, I'd ask them what is the matter, what can I do, where are they all going? I hope they're going to a happier place, and leaving us to die our own stinking mess. But I fear they're going to their death. Who is killing the honeybee? Well, we are. We don't stop those who spray poison to grow food, and we don't stop those killing the world in our names. If I could talk bee, I'd walk to every hive in the world and say sorry. I have been hearing the alarm for years. 
in the oncoming storm after storm after storm. In the slow, inexorable rising temperature, in the words of modern-day prophets who might call scientists, even the words of the naysayers, whose tone gets more frantic as the arguments get more incoherent and repetitive. The alarm is unambiguous to those of us who wait to hear it, and year after year the number of those of us with unencumbered ears increases, while the alarm gets louder. This planet will self-destruct, prepare to evacuate. We have no evacuation plan, no emergency exits. From this ship, this island with failing life support and ever-increasing warmth. We have no lifeboats, and if we had lifeboats, no hope of rescue. Emergency, prepare to evacuate. I'm looking for a lifeboat. Claire J. Coleman, and you can check out her debut novel, Terra Nullius, published by Hatchet Australia in 2017, and I highly recommend it. You're listening to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the Community Radio Network. Some writers have an effect so profound they live on, within us and in our culture, long after their passing. Ursula K. Le Guin was a writer of fantasy, science fiction and poetry. She created worlds which were both alien and also entirely relevant to our own. Le Guin starts by reading a short story from her collection, The Compass Rose. So uh, I'm starting with the, an editorial by the president of the Therolinguistics Association, written in 1974. Um, and it's from uh, the author of the Acacia Seeds and other extracts from the Journal of the Association of Therolinguistics. What is language? This question, essential to the science of Therolinguistics, has been answered heuristically by the very existence of the science, Language is communication. That is the axiom on which all our theory and research rest and from which all our discoveries derive. And the success of the discoveries testifies to the validity of the axiom. But to the related yet not identical question, what is art, we have not yet given a satisfactory answer. Tolstoy, in the book whose title is that question, answered it firmly and clearly, art is communication. This answer has, I believe, been accepted without examination or criticism by therolinguistics. For example, why do therolinguists study only animals? Because plants do not communicate. Plants do not communicate. That is a fact. Footnote 2014. Though this theory still has many adherents, it cannot now be spoken of as a fact. Therefore, plants have no language very well. That follows from our basic axiom. Therefore, also, plants have no art. But stay, that does not follow from the basic axiom, only from the unexamined Tolstoyan corollary. What if art is not communicative? What if some art is communicative and some art is not? Ourselves animals, predators, we look naturally for an active, predatory, communicative art. And when we find it, we recognize it. The development of this power of recognition and the skills of appreciation is a recent and glorious achievement. But I submit that for all the tremendous advances made by therolinguistics during the last decades, we are only at the beginning of our age of discovery. We must not become slaves to our own axioms. 
We have not yet lifted our eyes to the vaster horizons before us. We have not faced the almost terrifying challenge of the plant. (laughs) If a non-communicative vegetative art exists, we must rethink the very elements of our science. For it is simply not possible to bring the critical and technical skills appropriate to the study of weasel murder mysteries or batrachian erotica or the tunnel sagas of the earthworm to bear on the art of the redwood or the zucchini. (laughs) This is proved conclusively by the failure, noble failure, of the efforts of Dr. Srivas in Calcutta using time-lapse photography to produce a lexicon of sunflower. His attempt was daring but doomed to failure, for his approach was kinetic, a method appropriate to the communicative arts of the tortoise, the oyster, and the sloth. He saw the extreme slowness of the kinesis of plants, and only that is the problem to be solved. But the problem was far greater. The art he sought, if it exists, is a non-communicative art, probably a non-kinetic one. It is possible that time, the essential element, matrix, and measure of all known animal art, doesn't enter into vegetable art at all. The plants may use the meter of eternity. We do not know. We do not know. All we can guess is that the putative art of the plant is entirely different from the art of the animal. What it is, we can't say. We haven't yet discovered it. Yet I predict that it exists, and that when it is found, it will prove to be not an action, but a reaction, not a communication, but a reception. It will be exactly the opposite of the art we know and recognize. It will be the first passive art known to us. Can we, in fact, know it? Can we ever understand it? It will be immensely difficult, that's clear, but we should not despair. Remember that so late as the mid-20th century, most scientists and many artists didn't believe that even dolphin would ever be comprehensible to the human brain. Let another century pass and we may seem equally laughable. Do you realize, the phytolinguist will say to the aesthetic critic, that they couldn't even read eggplant? And they will smile at our ignorance as they pick up their rucksacks and hike on up to read the newly deciphered lyrics of the lichen on the north face of Pikes Peak. And with them, or after them, may there not come that even bolder adventure, the first geolinguist, who, ignoring the delicate, transient lyrics of the lichen, will read beneath it the still less communicative, still more passive, holy, atemporal, cold, volcanic poetry of the rocks, each one a word spoken how long ago by the earth itself in the immense solitude, the immenser community of space. And my little talk is called Deep in Admiration. Uh, Just this week I heard a poet say that the essence of modern high technology is to consider the world as disposable use it and throw it away. Well, we know that we don't need more infantile new technologies that demand throwing away all the old ones every Tuesday. We need adult rational technologies, old and new. Pottery making, bricklaying, sewing, carpentry, solar power, 
sustainable farming. But after our long orgy of being lords of creation and texting as we drive, it's hard to stop looking for the next techno fix. We have got to change our minds. To use the world well, we need to relearn our being in it, renew our awareness of belonging to the world. How how do we go about it? That awareness seems always to have involved knowing our kinship as animals with animals. Darwin gave that knowledge a scientific basis. And now both poets and scientists are extending our awareness of our relationship to creatures without nervous systems and to non-living beings, our fellowship as things with other things. Relationship among all things seems to be complex and reciprocal. It's always at least two-way, back and forth. It seems that nothing is single in this universe and nothing goes one way. In, in this view, humans appear as particularly lively, intense, aware nodes of relation in an infinite network of connections, simple or complicated, direct or hidden, strong or delicate, temporary, very long-lasting, a web of connections infinite but locally fragile, with and among everything, all beings, including what we generally class as things, objects. Now, Descartes and the behaviorists willfully saw dogs as machines without feeling. Is seeing plants as without feeling a similar arrogance? We don't know. But one way to stop seeing trees or rivers or hills only as natural resources is to class them as fellow beings, kinfolk. I I guess what I'm trying to do is subjectify the universe because look where objectifying it has got us. To subjectify is not to co-opt and colonize and exploit. Rather, if it's done honestly, it involves a great reach outward of the mind and the imagination. What tools do we have to help us make such a reach? Uh, Mary Jacobus, in a book called Romantic Things, wrote, The regulated speech of poetry may be as close as we can get to such things, to the stilled voice of the inanimate object or the insentient standing of trees. Poetry is the human language that can try to say what a tree or a rock or a river is, that is to speak humanly for it, in both senses of the word for. A poem can do so by relating the quality of an individual relationship to a thing, a rock, a river, a tree. The relationship to, or simply by describing the thing as truthfully as possible. Science describes accurately from outside, and poetry describes accurately from inside, you could say. Science explicates... Poetry implicates. Both celebrate what they describe. We need the language of both science and poetry to save us from 
ignorant irresponsibility. By replacing ignorance and unfounded opinion, science can increase moral sensibility. By demonstrating and performing aesthetic order or beauty, poetry can move minds to the sense of fellowship which prevents careless usage and exploitation of our fellow beings, waste and cruelty. Now, poetry often serves religion, and the monotheistic religions privileging humanity's right relationship with the divine tend to encourage arrogance. Yet even in that hard soil, poetry will find the language of compassionate fellowship with our fellow beings. Henry Vaughan, 17th century Christian mystic, wrote, So hills and valleys into singing break, and though poor stones have neither speech nor tongue, while active winds and streams both run and speak, yet stones are deep in admiration. Now, by admiration, I think Vaughan meant reverence for God's sacred order of things and joy in it, delight in it. And by admiration, I understand reverence for the infinite connectedness, the naturally sacred order of things, and joy in it, delight in it. So we admit stones to our holy communion, and so the stones may admit us to theirs. The late Ursula K. Le Guin, giving the keynote address to the conference Anthropocene, Arts of Living on a Damaged Planet, held in Santa Cruz, USA, in May 2014. And the final word goes to her as well. Here, she's helping us imagine our collective power. We hear her recorded accepting her medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters at the National Book Awards in 2014. We live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings. (laughs) Any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. Resistance and change often begin in art and very often in our art, the art of words. You've been listening to Earth Matters, Community Radio's National Environmental Justice Program. I'm Tisha O'Hearn. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcast at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on Wurundjeri Country. If you'd like to get in contact, you can call us on 03 9419 8377. You can send us an email on earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or go to our Facebook page. I hope you can tune in next time for more Earth Matters. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.